Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Oh, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and although we're coming to you from our studio in the Metro Washington, D.C. area, we're bringing you positive footprints from around the world. On today's show, Dr. P. By Atridge joins us to talk about his efforts to help bridge the gap between international and intercultural learning, especially with young adults and how we can reach our potential through global learning. Then the producers of the PBS documentary, For Love of Liberty, The Story of America's Black Patriots, Frank Martin shares the story behind this incredible film. Frank's partner in the project, movie producer Bill Straw, the man behind the movie's award-winning soundtrack, will join us for a compelling conversation. And finally, we'll introduce you to Nancy Rivard and the organization she founded, Airline Ambassadors International. Nancy shares a remarkable story of finding her life's purpose outside of corporate America and how she's making a real difference in the lives of others around the world. As always, if you have a question or comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, you know, we love speaking to you guys every week and, and seeing you here on the air, but we also love connecting with you each and every day on our social networks at Facebook, Twitter, even YouTube, and, of course, sharing our wonderful shows with you via our mobile platform on Stitcher. And you can find links to all of those things from our website at worldfootprints.com. And don't forget to stop by the travel store and pick up World Footprints gear and also look at the daily travel deals that are coming through. Dr. P. Byackridge is Principal Consultant and CEO for Worldwide Services, Inc., a Maryland-based organization that seeks to bridge the gap between international and intercultural learning and global e-commerce and to discovering the human potential through global learning. Byackridge joins us today to discuss what he means by this. Bye. Welcome. Thank you. Talk to us about how Worldwide Services got its start and how you're addressing global learning and workforce development needs. Worldwide Services grew out of uh, a need that I found uh, after nearly 20 years working in international business. I worked for uh, IBM both domestically and internationally doing fascinating work and as a lobbyist, uh, as a manager of corporate support programs in Asia, uh, managing higher education programs. Uh, but I continued to have a, a real personal need to focus on international education for young people. And I got to the point where, where that uh, desire really uh, grew to the point that I wanted to do it full time. And so in 2000, I um, left IBM. I, I hadn't been there long enough to retire, so I just left not wanting to just stay there doing something that I wasn't excited about doing. And at first I looked around for opportunities that might enable me to focus on international education and finding none, I, I just uh, started Worldwide Services as a consultancy. And uh, that enabled me to uh, find clients that had a shared interest in uh, global learning uh, and uh, international commerce. I know one of the driving forces, the driving passions that uh, that, that you're focused on with uh, Worldwide Services is something actually that Ian and I share with you, and that is um, the interest of, of 
providing opportunities for uh, young people, particularly those from underrepresented communities, students of color, to study abroad. Talk about the importance of that cross-cultural education, you know, combined with formal education, and what that allows, you know, students of color uh, to to do to accomplish. Actually, goes back to my own personal experience. I um, grew up in uh, the housing projects of Chicago and really didn't get exposed to a larger world until I went to high school, which was a very diverse high school in the south side of Chicago. And then I had the opportunity to go to uh, a uh, a college that exposed me even further to the world because there were students from all over the world. And I befriended some students from uh, Africa and became interested in Africa and eventually studied abroad in Kenya Hmm. for uh, a year. And, And that that was my personal journey to discovery of the world. And so my own case was very similar and continues to be very similar to the case of many, many students of color and disadvantaged students who were in college today uh, because they go to colleges, all kinds of colleges, uh, but participate and study abroad at much, much lower rates than their uh, counterparts. For example, African-Americans represent only 4% of all the students who study abroad in the United States, 4%, mm-hmm. Uh, while they represent about 12 or 13% of the total college-going community. So there's, there's a huge gap there. And uh, failing to have that uh, kind of seminal experience in college leaves them at a great disadvantage. So uh, I wanted to uh, develop some opportunity in the form of a program that would focus on these students and encourage them to take advantage of, uh, you know, probably one of the most important parts of a, of a college experience, and that's studying abroad. I, having studied uh, abroad uh, a couple of times, um, once in England for my graduate work and uh, once in China for uh, law, law school, during my law school years, and I was actually one of two out of the entire programs, um, you know, students of color, and I, I'm just wondering, now, I found those opportunities on my own because travel has always been a passion of mine. What do you attribute to the, the lower enrollment of students of color in these study abroad programs? Is it lack of information? Lack, what is the cause for this low enrollment? I think it's all of the above, Tanya. And let's just talk about a few of them. Uh, first of all, many students who go to college, uh, mainstream, traditional colleges, uh, come from families uh, of people who went to college. And if you've been exposed to college before, you likely have had some exposure to study abroad. Even if you didn't do it, uh, you had some exposure to it. But typical middle class uh, uh, folks who go to colleges who uh, happen to be white often have that uh, exposure and experience. And so they embed that expectation into their uh, children who then go on to college, and they just expect to go study abroad while they're in college. Many students of color who are first generation or come from uh, uh, families that don't have that kind of economic advantage don't think about going to study abroad while they're in college. They're just thinking about getting through college. The family's just thinking about being able to pay for them 
mm-hmm. to get through college or to find the uh, financial support to do so. So you've got the financial issue, you've got the social issue where the family may not be attuned to making sure that the student do that. Then you've got the uh, institutional environment on campus where, uh, with few exceptions, there is not the kind of outreach on the part of study abroad offices to really encourage uh, disadvantaged students uh, and students with economic um, challenges to study abroad and to bring to them the knowledge and the information that they need to understand that, yes, even though they may have some economic issues, that they too can study abroad because there are scholarship opportunities out there that can enable them to do so. One of the programs you're involved with involves uh, an adjacent county to Washington, D.C., Prince George's County. There you direct the International Ambassador Study Abroad Scholarship Program. Talk to us about how these programs, such as PGCIA, are making a difference in helping to reach underrepresented groups, particularly here with the ones you're working with in the Washington, D.C. area. The PGCIA program is is pretty unique because it's a partnership between the community, in this case Prince George's County, uh, the office of the county executive uh, agreed to uh, fund uh, scholarships that would enable students from that county, which is a predominantly African-American jurisdiction, uh, but it's an extraordinarily diverse community of folks from uh, Latin America, Central America, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And so uh, the county executive saw the vision that I presented to him to try to uh, make opportunities available for students from the county to have study abroad experiences. And because I had an affiliation at the University of Maryland, uh, I embedded it there. And so what we've been able to do is to establish a program that seeks out students who graduated from public schools in Prince George's County who are matriculated at the University of Maryland College Park who Mm -hmm. have a financial need. So we identify these students and then we encourage them to study abroad. And and if they pursue that, then we provide them with a a need-based scholarship which assists them to study abroad. And uh, we also provide other kind of programming assistance in the form of a pre-departure orientation, a re-entry orientation. We uh, encourage them to blog their experiences to share, uh, and we enable them to have uh, community service opportunities where they go out and talk to other students and other folks in the community about their uh, international study experiences, hoping to encourage them to think uh, about studying abroad when they go to college as well. Maya, I'm just curious, how much uh, of a part is the study of foreign language, how much is that a part of the curriculum in, in some of these study abroad programs? As you well know, you know, our culture here in the United States is, is very inwardly focused and English-centered. Mm-hmm. And so you can study abroad in all kinds of places, and, and students do. Uh, you can study abroad in Australia and England or uh, in other English-speaking countries. And you can also study abroad in countries where English is not the first language, but because of the proficiency of folks in those cultures, uh, you can pretty much manage to get by because they're they're meeting you in English, and, and you may not be able to meet them in, in their language, Spanish, French, or, or whatever it is. 
But in general, uh, we do encourage students to study in places uh, where they will have to develop a proficiency in a foreign language. Our students have studied in China and have really become uh, pretty proficient in Chinese in mm -hmm. France, where they've studied French, in places like Spain uh, and other parts of Central America where they've uh, developed their Spanish capacity, but they've also studied in places like uh, Jamaica where obviously uh, they've learned the patois, not quite uh, a legitimate foreign <laughs> language, but uh, they, they know how to, to hear and uh, speak some um, uh, Jamaican English. And we do encourage our students to develop that proficiency. But again, there are so many study abroad programs, some of which are only two weeks or three weeks or a month. Uh, others are uh, a full semester or a whole year. Mm -hmm. Now, in the longer study abroad programs, of course, uh, enable students to go much further in terms of their foreign language capacity. The shorter programs uh, do not, and for a whole variety of reasons nowadays, most study abroad programs are short-term programs. Clearly, global education, travel, intercultural experiences are part of the answer to making this country competitive, and that's about having students who can deal with the world and help grow and and, and prosper our country. Talk to us about about why you think it is important for our students, particularly the students that you tend to work with who haven't had this exposure as, as we generally think about it in our society in terms of helping to improve America's overall competitiveness and fundamentally lay the foundation for a much better life for them uh, going forward. Yeah, that's an excellent point, uh, Ian. I, I think it's clear to everybody at this point <clears throat> that we're living in um, a globalized world. Uh, all we have to do is look at the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the food we eat, uh, and the jobs that we gain, or very importantly, the jobs that we lose mm. uh, because of the nature of the global economy and shifting jobs uh, to other parts of the country. So in order to really be able to function, I think, effectively going forward, everybody needs to really understand how the world impacts us and how we impact the world. And so I think it's very important that we ensure that uh, the, the students that we're talking about here, students of color and disadvantaged students, that they understand that just as much as anybody else so that they can function in that environment, so that they can be uh, competitive uh, Americans so that they have the skills that enable them to, to do work that's important uh, and to contribute to this, this economy and, and to survive, that these students have the opportunity to engage in, in world affairs so that they can help us solve some of the most vexing problems that haven't been solved mm -hmm. thus far. Talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, some of the experiences that students who have participated in um, the study abroad programs you've uh, you've organized how they've been impacted and 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 how they've changed because of these travel experiences. Well, that's one of the most uh, inspiring parts of it. You know, I have my own experience which inspired me, but it's really wonderful to see these young people. Um, uh, many of whom who have not traveled abroad before, uh, who are scared, uh, have all kinds of issues, but, but have the, the desire to do so. They go and they come back transformed. Uh, these students have traveled all over the world now in um, Western Europe, in, in Asia, in the Middle East, in 
Central and, and South America and the Caribbean. Uh, I'll give you uh, maybe a couple of examples. One student who uh, traveled to study business in France, um, after, and she went for a semester, which was great because that gives you more time to uh, understand the culture and mm-hmm. to develop her, her French language skills. But when she came back, she said that one of the things she wanted to do when she graduated was to go back to graduate school in France. Hmm. Now, this is something she never would have thought of. And so having that exposure gave her the sense that she could go someplace else in the world to pursue her graduate studies, uh, which is very important because if she does that, then she'll, she'll have a whole different set of opportunities open to her because she's left this country, gone to another part of the world, developed skills, language skills, and knowledge of business, which then enable her to operate uh, on a much more global basis. Well, as we uh, wrap up here, I would like you to speak to what can we do and and what are some of the things that you're focused on to really give our young people a chance to uh, have these international and intercultural experiences that will transform their lives and 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 again that is such an important aspect when we talk about taking kids who are in impoverished situations and really giving them a chance to really have a different life out here each of us as parents or people in the community can encourage our kids to study foreign language uh, as, Amen. As, as Tanya observed uh, now foreign languages in this era of no child left behind uh, are not getting the kind of attention that they really need. But that is something that's fundamentally important, and we should encourage our our students to seriously study foreign languages beginning in uh, elementary school, certainly in high school, uh, going on to college. Secondly, uh, we should encourage and uh, take our kids uh, abroad. Now, that's not a very difficult thing to do. Canada is just to our north. You can drive there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to places like Montreal where they speak French. Uh, or you could go to places in the northwest uh, where you have a much more Asian uh, exposure in, in places like Vancouver. Uh, you can go south to Mexico where they speak Spanish uh, if you don't want to really travel too far away. But the point is, go to a different uh, part of the of the world and uh, be exposed to those cultures and those languages. Uh, thirdly, I think we, we really do have to focus on the funding issues because uh, travel and study is expensive. And uh, as a community and as governments, I think it's important to uh, focus funding on programs that enable our students to travel and, and study and, and other parts of the world. Churches, uh, certainly, and this as well. Uh, my program, which is very modestly funded, is always looking for uh, additional funds in order to to uh, survive and expand to enable students who wouldn't ordinarily have a chance to study abroad to, to get those experiences. Five, uh, one other quick question. You know, listener out there uh, hearing about your program and um, whether or not they're they're located in uh, Prince George's County or or other areas, um, how would they how would they how would they find you uh, to to talk to you about study abroad program that you um, organized and uh, how would they contact you to you know enroll their their child in perhaps a study abroad program? What's what's the process? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to, to anyone, uh, and obviously they can contact me in two ways, one by email, and I can be reached uh, uh, by email. Probably the easiest email address would be P-B-A-I, that's P as in Paul, B as in boy, A as in apple, I as in Indian, at umd.edu. That's U as in umbrella, M as in man, D as in David, dot edu. That's at the University of Maryland. Alternatively, they can just give me a call at uh, area code 301-442-6732. That's my cell, and I'm accessible uh, all the time. Well, you're brave to uh, to announce your cell phone number <laughs> on air here, Doctor. Well, P- as I mentioned, you know, I'm a small small uh, business person, and uh, you know, I, I'm not worried about being deluged. And I think the personal touch is always the, the most important. Absolutely. Dr. P. By Ackridge is Principal Consultant and CEO for Worldwide Services. Thank you so much, Bye, for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you, Tanya and Ian. Next, we'll learn the story behind For Love of Liberty, the story of America's black patriots from the film's producers, Frank Martin and Bill Straw, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm James from Victoria, Hawking in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Iron Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. For the latest and last minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Rocks my socks. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. When producer Frank Martin's documentary, For Love of Liberty, the story of America's black patriots premiered on PBS stations last February, it won nationwide acclaim for its in-depth depiction of the contributions of African-American men and women in the armed services. Likewise, the soundtrack for the documentary won the 2010 Gold Medal for Excellence in Film Music at the Park City Music and Film Festival. Recently, Blick Street Records founder Bill Straw released the original award-winning soundtrack on CD. Both Frank Martin and Bill Straw join us today from Los Angeles and Seattle, respectively. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, good morning. Frank, your company, 11th Day Productions, has a very diverse production history. You've created programming for primetime television on the major networks and cable. What drew you to For Love of Liberty? Well, you know, this is a story that I believe to be relevant to all Americans. You know, it's, uh, it's appropriate that the film would be released in, you know, in February during Black History Month, but it's really a story that speaks to us as a nation, and, and, and that's what uh, drew me to this material, you know. It, it, it was inspired by a book that was put out by the uh, Department of Defense back uh, when Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff called African Americans in Defense of Their uh, Nation, and it was full of stories that I had never heard before, and that's 
that's really what uh, pointed me in this direction. Now, you've put together an all-star cast, and I'm going to just rattle off some of those names. The host, Halle Berry, Avery Brooks, one of my favorite actors. Uh, you've, you've mentioned Colin Powell and voiceovers by Morgan Freeman, Susan Sarandon, Donald Sutherland, Louis Gossett Jr., and the list goes on. How did you assemble such an all-star cast for this? I wrote a lot of letters. As it turns out, a great many of the folks who uh, participated in the documentary by reading you know, this amazing collection of letters and diaries and speeches and things of that nature uh, did so because they had a connection to the military. Um, you know, Bill Cosby was in the Navy. Um, uh, Ice-T served in the Army. Um, you know, so, th so there's, uh, there, there's Morgan Freeman. You know, you mentioned Morgan. Morgan was served in the Air Force. So, um, all these folks, not all of them, but most of them had some connection uh, to uh, military service. Now, Bill, I'm, uh, we're always happy to uh, welcome a recovering attorney to uh, to the show, as uh, Ian and I are uh, are now recovering attorneys. Um, and your company, Blick Street Records, just released the award-winning soundtrack. It it took t it took ten years for Frank to bring this documentary to fruition. Talk about the process you went through for selecting the musical arrangements from four hours of film. Basically, I was given a couple of a uh, couple of CDs full of suggestions, and which had main themes and the main songs. And I also watched the film and took notes. And pr pretty much the the material that was selected by the people who did the music, uh, a uh, a guy, uh, one guy did the scoring. Uh, 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 guy by the name of Help Me Out Here, uh, Frank. Larry Brown. Larry Brown did mm -hmm. this. Goldie did produce most of the songs. And so they had done incredible work in putting the thing together. And then, of course, my job was to sort through it and try to create a, a cohesive album. So uh, in doing that, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to try to, in some fashion, create a parallel experience to watching the movie. And so I put it, I, I tried to use the themes in sequence in time, starting with Revolutionary War, working up through Civil War, Buffalo Soldiers Days, uh, World War One, World War Two, Korea, and, uh, and uh, present, uh, present time in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So putting it in sequence gave it some kind of form. Then the next thing to do was to try to marry the songs with the score material in such a way that uh, the songs didn't kind of stick out like sore thumbs because the score material is absolutely gorgeous and the songs are stunning, but they are essentially come from a different place. So we mixed and matched and in a couple of places used score material as bookends for the songs to underscore the basic emotion. And my, my goal was that somebody could put a CD on at home or in a car or, or, or whatever and essentially get the emotional feeling of the film mm -hmm. and, and in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way and uh, agree that that, uh, that turned out to be the case. We were successful and uh, you'll have to ask some, somebody else because as soon as you get that deep into it, you're, you lose your objectivity. So I, I believe we did it in these types of projects. Indeed. Now, speaking of, of music and, and the songs, Frank, you mentioned that, uh, I read somewhere that For Love of Liberty is uh, driven by African-American artists singing songs more often identified with white artists um, and that it was important to add a black consciousness to those familiar songs. Explain what you meant by that. Well, you know, uh, that's very true. The, the, and it, the song that you were, you, were, you were thinking about is called uh, 
was my brother in the battle. It's a, it's a, it's a song that was written by Stephen Foster um, back in the 1800s, and uh, it's a Civil War era song. And it's, um, it, it, it's primarily a, uh, a piece that originally um, written uh, to uh, commemorate the activities of white Union soldiers. Now, this song had never, ever been sung by uh, a black voice. And, mm. um, you know, we thought that by black voice to bear, uh, you know, on this, uh, on this particular piece of music would, uh, would give us a whole new perspective and a whole new understanding of, uh, you know, of what that music meant. Bill, in terms of your original focus in music, you started off producing Celtic music. What attracted you to For the Love of Liberty? Well, uh, first off, I've known, I've known Frank for almost 20 years, and so I knew about this project in, the, in, 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 in having him speak about it. And so the project itself uh, was to me was a no-brainer. It was something that should be done, and I knew Frank's work, and I knew I knew that he would do it well. And then I saw uh, some works in progress, so it was just a, uh, an array. Uh, in addition to to being stories that needed to be told, uh, the amount of talent that was involved in putting this thing together it was a smorgasbord. So I couldn't, uh, uh, you know, I I felt very privileged to to have a chance to play a role in it. You know, this is what we live for, is to be able to jump in the middle of a really, really great project. Honestly, the, the talent from Andre Crouch to, um, I believe, Santana's lead vocalist, you did have uh, a lot of wonderful songs to, to work with, Bill. And, um, you know, again, I, I, I can't impress upon our audience how moving uh, the compilation of, of these songs, you know, the CD is to me. Well, it, it was moving to me in its raw form, and uh, because the, store, the score material is so emotional, and the songs themselves are so emotional, the songs are extremely diverse. That's why uh, I was concerned about uh, putting it, bringing a little order to it, so that the diversity worked as a. Uh, I think the diversity actually works because it kind of varies over time. It actually works in terms of telling the story. And mm -hmm. can, you can, the diversity could make it disjointed if you, if you didn't somehow crack the code on how to organize it. But it became an asset in telling the story because as, as time changes, musical styles change. And so that actually worked to the benefit of the story. And we... In a couple of places, uh, you know, there's some very optimistic songs. Uh, however, it's also false optimism because we know what's to we know what's to follow. So then, uh, so I used a uh, a World War, a very somber World War theme, and layered it under there at the end to try to you know to try to give the realistic emotion of what people were dealing with. Bill, I want to come back to you, and as uh, you know, we're here in Washington D.C., and your company has a, a compilation by a local musician and singer, Grace Griffith, uh, called Sailing. Talk to us about what we can expect to uh, hear from her. Grace is uh, one of the better artists to come out of the D.C. area, and she has a long career. We have, uh, we've released, uh, between her and the, one of the groups she was in, uh, Siren Song, we've re released six, six, seven albums. And so this is the best of or at least it is an album that takes a high point from a long and very, very illustrious career. Grace is in a situation now, she's in advanced stage of Parkinson's, 
Aww. So it it is uh, she is going over to Glasgow, Scotland, mm. and to uh, give a workshop, music and Parkinson's, to try. And, and she is using her situation to try to give hope to other people who are in similar situations. Mm. The the uh, the album has been the new album is being extremely well received, and Grace pay, uh, played a very important part in our lives, aside from being privileged to release her work. She was the artist that brought us Eva Cassidy, also from the D.C. area. Grace is a dear friend, and she's an absolute trooper. She underwent uh, uh, experimental uh, surgery uh, at Johns Hopkins in, uh, four years ago, where they implant, uh, it's called deep brain stimulation, mm -hmm. electrodes in the brain. That gave her a great deal of relief mm -hmm. and the, but it's run by batteries and the batteries are running down so she just had the batteries retuned and replaced and retuned so she's she's uh, better than she's been in the last year or so and she's very optimistic about it she's thrilled about uh, getting this album out and, well uh, we're thrilled to be able to do it and nobody deserves it more well, it, it's it's a compilation that we're certainly looking forward to as well, based on uh, the compelling story that you've shared about Grace. Frank, one of your one of your most notable productions is to me is the John Huston film that you uh, you did, and I had a chance to meet John Huston back in the '80s when I worked at the Old Globe Theater, and he was uh, at the Globe producing Coriolanus. Um, incredibly extraordinary man with, I mean, his his appeal is just uh, magnetic. Of course, you know, I was just a starry-eyed kid back then, but what what was he like to you? What was it like filming him for 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 this this film? Well, John was a wonderful guy, you know. I uh, I and and I looked to him as uh, you know a mentor of sorts. I mean, he. Uh, we we reached out to him. Uh, the Dead. His last movie. What was that, Bill? Was it The Dead? The Dead. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And we sent him a letter asking if we could, uh, uh, you know, if we could make a documentary about him, document the story of his amazing life. And uh, he eventually agreed to that. You know, sent us an invitation. We came up and visited him. One of my fondest memories of him at that time was. Um, he was directing Angelica in a dance sequence uh, on the set, and you know the set was quite small, and, and John was uh, in another room and watching, uh, you know, directing the whole scene through a, a, a monitor, a video tap. And as as the scene is going on, Angelica is doing this beautiful waltz. Um, I'm standing behind John. He looks up at me and he goes, "That's my daughter." <laughs> but you know, I thought that was just such a sweet comment. But he was. You know, Lauren Bacall said that he was uh, uh, more of a Hemingway character than any character Hemingway ever dreamed up, you know, and, and that film was uh, an attempt to capture the many uh, fascinating facets of his, uh, of his life, you know, from being a boxer to a painter and a poet and living in Ireland, and, you know, so he was a great guy, and, and I, uh, I consider myself tremendously fortunate to have, you know, been able to uh, spend some time with him. Mm, indeed. And um, before I, I forget, I, I wanted to ask you, and this is for my father, um, who is a pseudo-historian, and I think I, I received my love of uh, history um, from him, but I was talking to him about for love of liberty, and um, 
surprisingly, he missed seeing it this past February. So, Frank, where can people who didn't see the documentary um, see it? Is it available on DVD? Will PBS run it again uh, this next uh, Black History Month? Or uh, how can people, uh, people discover this? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the, the answer is, yes, PBS is going to run the film again uh, in uh, February. I, I suspect a number of the stations are going to run it again in November for, you know, around the Veterans Day uh, commemoration. Mm-hmm. But people can see this film anytime they want by going to forloveofliberty.org um, and at forloveofliberty.org. Uh, you can buy both the uh, DVD, the three-disc collector's edition of the film, along with the soundtrack. Um, and there's a, you know, kind of a little special discounted price there for folks that want to buy both, uh, both of them, um, which I encourage p- uh, people to do because they're two very different experiences. You know, very early on when Bill and I began talking about this soundtrack, um, you know, my thought was, well, we'll take the music and we'll use some of these letters and some of these great voices and we'll weave all that through the music. So I roughed out a demo like that and sent it up to Bill saying, here's what I think it should be. And, you know, Bill came back and said, well, this is a wonderful kind of uh, uh, musical story, but, uh, you know, anybody that listens to this is going to listen to it one time because then they will have heard the story where the music itself is timeless. It's something you listen to over and over and over again. Um, and I realized, well, that's why Bill is in the music business and I'm not. So uh, that's what that soundtrack does. The soundtrack is a, uh, you know, it's a wonderful complement, mm-hmm. but it also stands alone. We, are, we would also sell it directly at, at Wick Street, B-L-I-X Street, spelled out, mm-hmm. one word, dot com. Now, what's next for, for you gentlemen? Frank, what, what's your next project? Well, you know, I am still deep in the middle of this one. Um, you know, normally when I make a film, I when it's done, I hand it over to whoever it was that hired me to make it, and, and I move on to the next project. You know, in this case, we used pretty much all of our own money uh, to make this film, and um, so it's up to me to keep, um, you know, spreading the word, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because the moment I stop, you know, people will lose interest. So we've spent a great deal of this summer um, traveling around to conventions and doing screenings. We just did one last week at the National Archives there in D.C. Um, starting in October, we have uh, an educational initiative we've, we've launched, which is essentially repurposing the documentary, reformatting it would be a better word, to, um, you know, to make it applicable to uh, high school and, and university classrooms. So, um, you know, there's still lots of work to do on this one. And before I kind of abandon it and, you know, go back to making, you know, reality television shows, uh, oh. <laughs> I, you know, there's still, there's still a bit of work to be done on this. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're uh, <laughs> I, I love the work you're doing now with this. Uh, I'm a fan of reality shows, but this is a little bit more purposeful. Uh, that's kind of my thinking. This is, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, very, very satisfying, and there's a reason that I spent 10 years making it, and, you know, that reason is that this is a very, very important story yes. that really goes to the heart of who we are as a nation, and it continually, uh, uh, you know, surprises me how little we know about this. 
Indeed. And and Bill, um, what what's next for you? And and also wanted to ask you, where can people find uh, information about uh, Grace Griffith, her performance schedule, um, news about her new CD? Well, I think the best place is probably to go to our website, which is flickstreet.com. Uh, Grace's performance schedule will be. Uh, she'll be doing a few things, and, and, and we've already started to get calls from people that have received a new CD uh, saying, where, where can we book her? But because of her situation, uh, whatever the performance schedule is, it will not be what it would have been without the situation. Mm-hmm. So she's not going to be doing any heavy-duty touring. Uh, I don't want to speak for her, but you know, I, uh, the reality is that uh, we'll have to pick and choose among that. And so... And there's been a great deal of interest just from the people who've received the records because a lot of people, a lot of our uh, small shops that carry our stuff, we send, we send them out samples. And as soon as they got this, they started calling. And so uh, this, uh, we're hoping this will be a, uh, this will bring, bring Grace's profile way up. And it's kind of like uh, Eva's Songbird album. This is a major, major work, and it was a one-time opportunity to take a relatively unknown artist and kind of overwhelm the people that hadn't heard her by we had such a, so much material to choose from. We really loaded this up. Bill Straw, the man behind the music, Frank Martin, the man behind the images, and For Love of Liberty, the story of America's black patriots. We thank you so much for being with us today on World Footprints. Thanks, you guys. After the break, we'll introduce you to Nancy Rivard and Airline Ambassador International as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones, and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. I love listening to the World Footprints Radio show online. Hi everyone, this is Reba McIntyre for RAD. You know, I see a lot of funny things traveling all over this beautiful country of ours, but one thing that's not very funny is when someone gets in a car trying to drive when they're drunk. Take their keys away from them, because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio every Tuesday. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. If you're looking for an opportunity to offer extraordinary service to someone else, you'll enjoy meeting our next guest. Nancy Rivard left her management track in American Airlines to find her purpose. She found it in the organization she created, Airline Ambassadors International, the only nonprofit that marshals the connections of the airline industry with humanitarian efforts. And I personally know that this is an extraordinary organization. I'm very happy to welcome Nancy to our show. Welcome, my dear. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. What was the genesis of Airline Ambassadors for you? Well, um, it's an interesting story. I, I was, like I said, going up the management track with American Airlines when my, my father died suddenly, and it was Christmas Eve in 1981. Mm. And I just thought, he was only 54. And mm. I looked ahead of me on the corporate ladder, and there were a lot of 
wonderful people, but they didn't seem to have a higher purpose in my life, in their life. And so I said, but I don't want that. I'm going to turn out just like them. So I I took a backward step professionally to, Mm -hmm. to move toward my soul. And I went back to being a flight attendant and used my time off to travel around the world where Mm. I was really seeking out the nature of reality, documenting miraculous phenomena. Um, And during that seven-year search, I saw lots of miracles. And I saw children in every country who needed, had basic needs unmet. At the same time, I'd seen overhead bins and the uh, and seats on our airplanes that were not full. Mm-hmm. At the end of the seven years, uh, I gave away all my possessions. The American had opened a base in Hawaii, and I really went inside myself and asked what what I could do to help humanity, how I could make a difference. And I realized that flight attendants, even though people think they have no skills, could become a living link between world need and world resource. We could be delivering jackets, HIV meds, hygiene supplies, school supplies, medicine, and that we started to do. I I began, I did, I made a commitment to do one thing a month, and on my first trip, I remember I went to Bosnia, the war was still on, this was in 1993, and uh, we delivered hotel amenities from our layover hotels to the Bosnian refugees. I only had two flight attendants come with me then, and it was unbelievable. Our gifts were received like gold. And then the next month I went to escort a little child that needed medical care, not available in Guatemala, or she needed heart surgery. So I went down and used my passes to go pick her up and bring her to New York. And the flight attendant said, what are you doing? Uh, I said, oh, I have this idea, airline ambassadors, where airline personnel use their passes to help others, and we could inspire a whole new wave of travel. They said, put me on your list. Oh, bless. And and that's that's really how it started. I mean, it just, you know, kind of everybody wants to feel and wants to find their purpose and wants to feel that they're living a purposeful life. And so what you've really done is tap into to that desire. And, I mean, obviously you've accomplished a lot over mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, you have a lot of different programs like the, the Symphony for, for Life. And I just wanted to ask you to tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, oh, for example, um, every place we go, we look for a way to really help. We ask the orphanage, the clinic, the facility what they need. And in Haiti, where we were able to accomplish an awful lot, we got in 17 airplanes of aid after the disaster. But I met um, uh, the music school, the only music school in Port-au-Prince had fallen. Mm-hmm. And the stringed instruments, they have to go in airplanes. And they asked me if we were able to bring the string, the instruments to Haiti. And so we've been hand-delivering them one by one. We've got like 50 or 60 guitars in. And then we also brought them from Washington down to Ecuador and staffed a whole symphony there. And then we provide a trip where our volunteers can go mm-hmm. and see the children and receive a wonderful concert from them. Now, Nancy, you're still on the ground in Haiti. Uh, talk to us about uh, some of the things that you're still doing there because the needs are so great. Yes, well, you know what I see in Haiti is the opportunity for us as humanity to build a model of sustainable development. But it's such a small country, and it's got so much wrong with it. We've been working there since 1996, but I, I'm real, we're very committed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the earthquake, we, my very first orphanage Christmas party for airline ambassadors in 1996 was in Haiti. 
And um, then we brought in a couple, two airplanes in of aid um, up until 2008. And after the earthquake, we had just signed an, an MOU, an agreement with Southcom, U.S. Army Southcom, that allowed us to get landing slots. They had helped us in Columbia last year, so we had just signed that. So when the earthquake hit and the ports were closed, there was no way to get aid to the people except by air. So we were able to get um, some of the homeless people of Miami sent me a check for $16,000, and I chartered our first plane. Oh, bless. I took that as a sign from God because I couldn't get an, uh, an airline to give me an airplane. So we paid for our first charter in on the 17th of January. And since that time, then United Airlines gave us seven airplanes. They don't mm. even fly there. And we were able to actually ultimately bring in 17 airplanes. We first focused in the first phase of the disaster on medical needs. Mm-hmm. There were up to 100 amputations a day. and Oh, it was just so horrible, mm. some without even and drugs. And then we focused on food security in the tent camps. We brought in food and water that we distributed almost on the spot. Uh, we really went out there into the tent camps, and you can see images and pictures of our deliveries uh, on our website, AirlineAmbassadors.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we want to make a long-term difference. So we're also focused on building permanent housing in the Central Plateau, we, where we're building two different communities where they provide education and health care and vocational training. We're teaching people how to build properly so because this is a big booming business now in Haiti. They have to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And we're also focused on child trafficking. We just finished, completed two um, safe houses for children in danger being trafficked over the borders, and we're developing a training program for the airport personnel, both in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. I know you're organizing a humanitarian cruise called Cruise for Haiti as part of uh, continuing this uh, mission of rebuilding Haiti. Talk to us about the cruise. Right. Well, we're very excited about this because airlines and ships connect people and places in the body of the planet and the body of humanity. And we, this is our first um, initiative with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines or with any cruise lines. And so we're excited to kick off the whole concept of cruising for a cause. Our uh, cruise for Haiti leaves on November 14th and lands on November 21st. Uh, it comes back to Miami, but it goes to Puerto Rico, to St. Martin, and to Labadee, Haiti. Ooh. And it and at every stop, we are uh, doing humanitarian activity. We've got 300 babies in, in Puerto Rico. We've got a boys' orphanage in St. Martin. And we're helping an orphanage, a burn center, and a school in, um, in uh, Labadee. That sounds like a, a cruise uh, World Footprints should, should be a part of. <laughs> exactly. We have a huge party, a kickoff party you should come to. Um, well, the Bon Voyage party is on November 13th on Saturday night at the Doubletree Hotel in Miami. Wow, that's coming up too. So yeah. make sure our listening audience, and of course they can find information at uh, airlineambassadors.org, your website. Fantastic, yes, uh, okay. absolutely. Great. Now I, I want to circle back to, to one of the... Um, one of your newest initiatives you just touched on um, momentarily, you know, moments ago, uh, child trafficking, and and building awareness of that issue among the airlines. What are some of your initiatives? I mean, this is something. Uh, this yes. is an issue that Ian and I are actually um, uh, going to to build awareness of in 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 our sphere. But what are some of the uh, things that you're doing to build oh, awareness? Fantastic. 
Well, um, uh, the recent article in American Way also tells the story of how we got started in this. Last summer, I was on one of our airline ambassador missions in Cambodia, and we found a little girl uh, who, who had been abandoned by her mother. They call her a karaoke baby. The mother works in the karaoke bars. Hmm. And she had been abandoned. She had no, no hair, no clothes, and no name. And she had been actually, she found a red marker. She was trying to ba- uh, draw clothes on her own body. Oh, how old was this child, Nancy? She is about. She was about two when we found her. Oh my You'll goodness! You'll see pictures of her on our website. So we um, actually we were about to turn away, but we thought we can't turn away. So we took her to the doctor to make sure that the brain damage hadn't set in. She was covered in um, in uh, skin lesions and things, but we were able to get her to a safe house. And it made me realize how many vulnerable children are out there. And then in Thailand, I saw all the young girls that were sold into the night markets. And I thought, mm. i got to get involved in this issue. So I invited um, Deb Sigmund from Innocence at Risk, who had a flight attendant training program on the issue, to come on our next mission to the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, on all three airlines we left on, there was a trafficking situation on JetBlue, on Delta, and on U.S. Air. And in every case, the flight attendants did not know what to do. So we told them what to do, that they notify the international authorities through the pilots, ICE, and in every case we were right. Oh, my gosh. So I went to Congressman Chris Smith, who authored the legislation on trafficking, and said we have to do an outreach to airline partners. If 800,000 people are coming across international borders against their will, most of them children, every year, we need to alert flight attendants and flight crews about this issue so they can be eyes and ears for international security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we did that, and American followed up. American is going to include this in EPTs next year and issued a bulletin to flight attendants. So we're very happy about that, but we certainly need to do a lot more. Nancy, one of the interesting things that uh, you've mentioned thus far is, 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 is how your organization takes care of the humanitarian issues on one side as well as combining what I would call airline operational expertise and training from the things that you've done in Haiti to the things in just in terms of raising awareness with, yes. with cabin crews. This is a pretty unique mission. Talk to us about how these things really became merged in your organization, because that's very unique, I'd say. Yeah, actually, we are the only independent charity of the airline industry as a whole. Um, But anyway, what I noticed years ago during my spiritual search was that there was not an infrastructure for ordinary people to directly touch human need. I could give money to save the children. In fact, I did, and I tried to go visit my little child. It was very difficult. Hmm. I give money to UNICEF, but you're not allowed to visit a UNICEF project. And I realized if we could create a, a system, an infrastructure for people to be in touch with actual world need, it would not only meet an, a need for the children <clears throat> or bringing necessary supplies, but it would meet a need inside ourselves to express our fundamental generosity, selflessness, and compassion. So, I, I, again, no one was interested in any of my ideas. In fact, one time I was meditating in my apartment. I'd gone to all the airlines about this idea, and uh, this voice, I said, how am I going to change the, this is the largest industry in the world. I'm just a flight attendant. How can I make a difference? And this voice said, stop talking about it and start doing it and watch what happens. 
So that's when I did the Bosnia trip. I said, well, we just started modeling it ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. One of the things Ian and I talk a lot about when we talk about our own path, um, you know, we, we left our law practices, we're attorneys, and decided to embark on what we're doing now because, this is very purposeful and it's very fulfilling. And what we always share with people is that when you step out on faith and when you follow your passion, everything else comes. Everything else will follow you and you'll be where you're supposed to be. And that's exactly what I'm hearing from you, your experience. <laughs> and I well, love that. It's still been difficult because I think when we're breaking new ground with new thinking, uh, you're like a salmon swimming upstream. Yeah. The American and the other airlines didn't quite know what to make of me when I was talking about a triple win philosophy and having mm. the airline industry emerge as a great potent force for building world goodwill. Mm-hmm. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what in the world I was talking about. <laughs> so it, it's, not, it's been difficult. I mean, we, it's taken every ounce of our energy, mm-hmm. time. I mean, we've been operating at 2% overhead with no, virtually no corporate support or business plan. Mm. But we've been able to consistently um, bring love into action, move 50 million pounds of aid, directly changing the lives of 500,000 children. My so, gosh. Well, you know, yeah. the uh, journey of a 1,000 miles begins with the first step, and you've actually taken several, and, and it really does take a village to raise anything, even even an organization. And so tell us how individuals can, can support your efforts, where they should go, um, what needs you have to fulfill, and what, what other people, what our listening audience can do to help. First of all, we want to make um, our trips available to people and the public so just that they can see where their donation dollars are going. We need $5,000 to build. I need uh, for, for each safe house that we're rebuilding in Haiti. We're building 10 more. Um, we need uh, funding to bring a little child out of um, uh, Haiti right now for life-saving medical care. Mm. I need foster families. We need volunteers. Hey, you with your legal expertise, that's something that we also need <laughs> <laughs> on several counts. So, But um, basically, if they could go to our website and look at the different projects that we're trying to fund, we're building um, – we built a uh, – we're building a medical clinic, a vocational training center in Haiti. We've got a school and projects in Costa Rica. Mm. We're, we've adopted 90 families for life-changing. Um, uh, they had children that had heart, heart um, surgeries, and we mm-hmm. brought 30 of them out of El Salvador in June. I'm going back next week. And we're adopting the 90 families and providing nutritional support for them and also micro-enterprise training for the women. Okay. So they can become sustainable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, and all this on your, and of course, Cruise for Haiti, which is, which is coming up uh, very soon. Yes, we want you to come to the Cruise for Haiti. We've got music. We made like an MTV of our, of our, uh, a trip with King Wawa, who will be the musician, and he's also coming on, on the, uh, the cruise, and even if people just come to the Miami uh, event on Saturday, they'll get a taste. We're planning uh, four or five more cruises next year, and so those will be on the website also for families and for spring break, okay. for school trips. Yeah. And your website again? It's airlineambassadors.com. 
Nancy Rivard, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and as always, we look forward to spending quality time with you each and every week at this time, and of course, every day on our social networks. And you can always connect to us during the week from our website at worldfootprints.com and sign up for our newsletter and also our mobile platform. We're Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC.